Thank you so much for listening to the podcast version of our show. Between the Sheets airs live at twitch.tv slash critical role at 7 p.m. Pacific on Monday nights, then is uploaded to our YouTube at youtube.com slash critical role on Wednesdays. Subscribers to our Twitch channel get early access to VODs, emotes, and more. Enjoy today's conversation with Chris Perkins. What do you ask Chris Perkins about D&D that he hasn't already answered a dozen times in his 20-year career as one of the custodians of the game? Well, I decided to dig into his creative process and how he feels the game has changed and will change, as well as his own personal legacy. He also came prepared to interview me with his own questions. We had a blast, and there's no one cooler than Chris Perkins. Enjoy. This is called a blushing buck, and it's a, a crushing fuck. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> if there was alcohol in it, yes, because okay. this is a lot of liquid. Uh, but yeah, this is a this is a mocktail. This is a non-alcoholic. Uh, um, yum, that's good. I love me some cucumbers and some mint. I know it's really kind of just light and refreshing, and yeah. it's easy on the conscience, you know. Wow. That's so good. Got a long day ahead of us. We can't be getting too turned up, you know, this early in the game. You ever think about what you would be doing right now if D&D never came into your life? If, you know, RPGs, that whole thing wouldn't be sitting here with me, man, having a blast, you know, <laughs> be somewhere else. That's true. I'd be... Well, we don't actually know each other that well. No, I, we've I only mean, met like twice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I feel like we should be, I should get to know you as much as you get to know me. You can ask me whatever you want. All right. We'll so cut all of it out. a question and I'll Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, right. we'll go right. straight off. Awesome. That's great. Okay, so I'd be a political speechwriter. You think so? I, I know so. You know so? Okay, Absolutely. tell me about I that. I would totally be that. Tell me about that. So I graduated from university with a degree in rhetoric, mm. which... I didn't even know that was a degree you could get. Yeah. Rhetoric and professional writing wow. is, is what the whole thing is called. But but rhetoric is really my bag, or was um, back when I was getting my education. And I thought that if it didn't work out, that's what I would lean toward. But politics in Canada lacks the spice that politics in America has. So yes. I think being a speechwriter down here would be even more hysterical and funny. And yeah, um, I don't know who I'd be a speechwriter for, per se, but I like the craft of persuasive language mm. and using weaponizing language in a way to influence people. Wow. And where did you go to college? I um, got that degree at the University of Waterloo yep. in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Yep. I also uh, went to that school for mathematics. And then I went to the University of Toronto for my teaching degree. Wow. Yeah. You were in college for, or even school for. Yes. A lot of your life. Yeah. Yeah. One of the great things, though, about the University of Waterloo is they have something called a co-op program. I don't know if you've heard of it here, uh -uh. if there's anything comparable. But what it is, is you go through your entire college, four months in class and four months out on a work placement. Oh, yeah. Which they help set up for you. And they pay you. Really? While you're on the placement. So you're paying your way through your higher education. That's So I, I came amazing. out with no debt. No student loans. Exactly. You'd still be paying them off, probably. Probably. With all of that yeah. school. Yeah. Exactly. So wow. um, that was that was a good good program, and it gives you, of course, the experience 
experiences along the way that you can leverage on your resume when you actually go out and get a real full-time gig. Right. Politics is like a, a secondary passion for me. As anybody who follows my Twitter account probably Yeah, I could tell from your Twitter, yeah. yeah. But I like the idea of using language as a way to persuade people to think differently than they would normally. Mm. Do you feel like it works? Mm -hmm. Not all the time, but it's not supposed to. I'm asking because there's a lot of noise out there right now, right? Yeah, and right. I sometimes, I struggle with what to say and what to put out there. Because not that I'm afraid of being incorrect or anything like that, or I'm afraid of alienating people. It's not really any of that. I, I, yeah. I care about those things, but it's not really that. For me, it's more of, I don't want to just add to the noise. I'm an actions person versus yeah. just words, and I, I don't want to just add to the noise. So I'm, I'm trying to find that sort of sweet spot where my mind isn't changed by anything I see on Twitter usually. It's, mm -hmm. it's usually a conversation with a friend or yeah. seeing or, or life experience or seeing somebody go through something and going like, oh, man, that's awful. I actually am changing the way I feel about this yeah. sort of thing after it's touched me. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I use Twitter um, in, in, as a way to connect with people that I can't normally reach mm -hmm. out to, but also to get different perspectives. Like, mm. uh, I follow a lot of people who I don't agree with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, particularly in the political arena, but also in other... But also me. and Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it, it helps me... If you're going to frame an argument, you have to know where the opposing argument's coming from and mm -hmm. where it's based and what it's rooted in and all that kind of thing. So it interests me to follow uh, people with diverging opinions. But also, if I can't say anything that's going to change people's minds, then I'll just try to say something fun. Yeah. Or funny. Right. Yeah. Kind of lighten the room because mm -hmm. social media can be dark place. Big time. Yeah. And anything that, any light that you can bring to the darkness, I think, is received by just anybody well. Right, yeah. And so if you, I think there is, a, there's actually truth to the fact that if you have nothing nice to say, it's probably best if you don't say it in a public venue. Right, right. Uh, but people are out there looking for something. Nobody just hangs out in social media without wanting some moment where they can feel human or mm. liked or- Or connected to or each connected other. connected to each yeah. other. And so a little bit of levity or lightheartedness or fun can can have a greater impact than you know. Right, and, yeah. And words can have a greater impact than you know. In the 20 years, 21 years now that I've been with Wizards, I'm still constantly surprised with the effect that a simple tweet or a simple good, just sending a good vibe out there, a little bit of light, what that impact can have on people that you've never met or you might have not met yet. From all over the world. Exactly. And even people that aren't even in our political, yeah. you know, mess right now they're right. removed from it and they have their own but they yeah, yeah they they're yeah everybody's looking for that and i think we all need a reminder that we just if if we're close to something sometimes we just have to step back mm. you know we can't control everything in our universe we can only control certain things and i'm very much of the philosophy that i don't try to worry about things beyond my sphere of influence right it yeah. infuriates me some of the things that go on beyond my sphere of influence but i try not to lose sleep over that mm. um, only tackle what you can affect Wow. Yeah. When you put the positivity out there or, you know, something that's meant to encourage people, it's interesting because you don't get blowback from that stuff. Right. But if your beliefs and your core values and your framework comes through in a thing, there's oftentimes people who try to tear that down or whatever else. How do you handle that? Like, do you, do you respond to those people? Do you ignore them? Do you feel like 
they should be included in the conversation or fuck that. Where do you <laughs> land on that whole thing? Um, it, it really depends on where my mind is at the time. Uh, or what the subject is probably or, too. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. 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 Uh, sometimes, sometimes I feel a need to step in and correct something I believe is ill-informed mm. or, or silly or stupid. Other times I feel like, no, that's going to correct itself. Or I might think, I could I could say something to somebody about this or that, and it won't. I know it won't have much of an effect, so I'm not going to bother. Yeah. But if I think that there's a potential that what I say might be received in the spirit with which it's given, mm. then I'd be more inclined to to do it. To do it. Yeah. So it's there's no. I I have no. I always do it this way, or I always do it mm. that way. It's always how do I feel in the moment, and do I think what I'm doing is going to positively affect somebody or make the conversation worth continuing. Right. Some conversations just need to die. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree. You'll feel that way about this one in 40 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) You talked about the fact that you used to be, well, you're still Canadian. You're still a, you're still Canadian, but you're not a Canadian citizen. Correct. I was born uh, in Canada, but yes. I gave up my Canadian citizenship as part of becoming an American citizen. And you did that two years ago. Two, uh, three years. Uh, ago? 2014 was when okay. I, it actually became a done deal, and I had already been living in the states up to that point, like 18 years. So yeah, I was going to say. So let's rewind the clock. Then you, where in Canada were you born? So, well, there's just Canada. There's just Canada. You're just, I was born it's in Canada. One. It's just all one thing. All one White <laughs> yeah. wasteland. Yeah. Uh, but I've sort of migrated westward steadily um, over the course of my life. My parents live in Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. where they're currently buried under 35 feet of snow. Yeah. Uh, and my sister lives outside of Toronto, Canada. Mm. And so um, that's where my family is Yeah, for the most part. Um, me coming out west was me getting a job at TSR slash Wizards of the Coast. Yeah. That's when I made the the migration and had actually a bit of trouble getting down here because it was during the salmon fishing wars, which nobody really remembers, but there was this big spat between Canada and the U.S. over salmon fishing. There was? Yes. What was, this, what was the argument? It was a trade thing. Oh. Like, where's our salmon coming from? Uh, you know, too much Canadian salmon. We need more American salmon, blah, blah, blah. Uh, while this was going on, I was trying to get my visa. Mm. to come down to the States and Work visa. it was extremely difficult because everybody was so prickly about the salmon fishing wars. So they accused me of forging all my paperwork. They threatened to confiscate my car, all of this at the, all this at the American border. So it was, it was a horror Man. show. Canadians are so nice. Yes. And then there's the process of renewing your visa every year. And mm-hmm. once you, you know, after you've lived in the States for a while, you really have no excuse but to become an American. If you're going to, if you know you're going to be spending. If you're going to live and work here, exactly. you might as well. Yeah. So, and I've always been drawn to the water. Mm. So if not, if I wouldn't live on the Atlantic Ocean, I'd live on the Pacific Ocean. You want to be on the coast? Yeah. Why do you think you've been drawn to the water? Is it because, you know. Because I'm a fish. <laughs> I don't know. Because I'm one of the salmon they were fighting over. <laughs> right, exactly. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm like an Innsmouth. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Innsmouth man. I'm, I'm going to be carried into the sea and borne down to the depths of yep. you know, Cthulhu's sunken palace. <laughs> Uh, it's one could only hope. Yeah. I I don't know. I think there's, there's something about the water that is so powerful and primal. Mm. Um, Mm. When I'm standing on the Pacific ocean, I feel like I'm just closer to something just 
bigger than yourself. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what it is. It's it's a it's a potent drug almost. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, being in the presence of such awesomeness, and I'm very much the type of person where I like to spend my idle time, like out walking with the dog, yeah, in places where there are no other people around, mm. and just discovering the world, mm. and can be entranced by the color of sand or the the color of a rock or the shape of a tree or something like this, you know, and all that bleeds into my work. Right. Um, And it feeds my ideas Hmm. of, of, you know, future adventures to tell and Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. Yeah. I find that when I'm alone, I get my best ideas. Yeah. I was going to ask you, so because you live and breathe and work and all that in the D and D world, Besides walking with Milo, your awesome dog, where what what do you do to get? Because there's got to be times where you're like, I, I got to get the fuck away from D and D for a minute, and I have to put my mind somewhere else. I know that that thing is still going to work its way back in, right? But what do you? What you do would you, think that? I, I would, yeah. But actually, actually, my my life is D and D. Yeah, I'm married to D and D. Yeah, um, and it when I'm not working on D and I'm almost always thinking about D and D. So you want that input to be constantly. Yeah, I'm thinking about my I'm, and not necessarily the D and D that I'm working on, but like my campaign. Mm-hmm. Or, like I run a weekly game. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. For some players, we stream it on Twitch, and at least like six, seven times an hour, that pops into my head. Of, you know, what are we? What am I going to do in a future session? Oh, that would be a lot of fun. Oh, that's mm. kind of cool. D and D is my life, and I've just accepted it, and I never feel like I need to get away from it. Good. Okay, that's interesting. What type of media informs that stuff then that you want? Oh. Like, yeah, w- what books, what what music, what movies do you go to f- to draw from for inspiration for all that stuff? Then it's a it's a melange of yeah. everything. Um, a lot of the pop cultural stuff, but actually, a lot of people ask me what I read, and if I draw a lot of influence from uh, literature. Yeah, I mostly read nonfiction. Hmm. Uh, I was never big into history or anything growing up. I never took history classes. I avoided like the plague. Yeah. But somewhere along the line in my D&D career, I discovered that history not only has powerful lessons that I can learn, but also just material I can loot. Wow. Crazy things that can happen in your world of D&D have probably actually happened in this world sometime yeah. in the past and nobody knows about it or has forgotten about it. And so I, I read a lot of history stuff and, and a lot of other nonfiction stuff. In some ways, it's like a palate cleanser, mm. I guess. It, because you are in the fantasy world, and then it's like... It keeps it keeps me grounded in the real world, in yeah, a sense. Yeah, Because I don't want to go around saying, I'm in a fantasy world all day. Right, but, yeah. Uh, but I, I look to history, and I look to what's going on in the world, and politics is the same thing. Mm. I'm always looking at politics as a, as a study for what I might be able to extract or use mm-hmm. in a future product. And the real world is more absurd than anything you can write about, as you know. Stranger than fiction, yeah. Exactly. So I'm I'm drawing inspiration from the world around me and from things that have happened before. Mm. And what's good about that or what I find is useful about that is history is rooted in the human condition. Mm-hmm. It's all humans doing dumb shit mm-hmm. yeah. over and over and over again yeah. ad nauseum, yeah. killing each other, you know, mm-hmm. uh, threatening each other's borders. Mm-hmm. Uh, like all of that is stuff that we as humans need to talk about and we we express it in myriad different ways i express it through 
my work in Dungeons and Your Dragons. Your storytelling. And, exactly. Yeah. So when I create a character who ends up in adventure, that character may be based on a historical figure to some extent. Right. Or they may have some personality of somebody who existed in real life. But more importantly to me is uh, that character's story or what that character has to say will speak to the players on some level hmm. or uh, will resonate in the game on some level. Yeah. It will lend an air of authenticity to the adventure because these feel like real people. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm, I totally do, yeah. yeah. How do you think the political structures of the world and everything fits into that? Because obviously in many different ways of telling a campaign, there are, you know, regimes and there's exactly. political infrastructure and there's right. all that stuff. Matt is great too, as well as you about you know, yeah. setting up those things in the world so that you understand stakes and you understand complications, you understand right. whispering and lies yeah. and, and, and manipulation. You also know, because of your background, your education, the power of per persuasive language, yes. like you were saying. So yes. how does that, how, how do you draw from history and the political stuff in history and then make that fit into the world? It's a complicated question, but it's when you, when you're creating something new, let's say, let's say I'm going to take my characters or Matt's going to take his characters to a new kingdom. Mm -hmm. Then you start to think of, okay, how did, where did this kingdom come from? Uh, who's ruling it? How long have they ruled it? Who ruled it before them? Is it a dynasty? Who are the advisors to the king or the queen? What's the court like? Is it based, is there some like fusion of feudal Japan with Irish Celtic thing yeah. going on here? Like yeah. you can take different elements and mash them together. But to answer those questions, you kind of have to know something mm. about Feudal Japan yeah. or Celtic, yeah, Celtic. medieval yeah. Ireland or mm -hmm. fairy myth or whatever. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just kind of, you might flounder and not get anywhere. Mm. Um, so what was your question? <laughs> yeah. How, how, cause you're reading history and you're, you know, you're, yeah. you're reading about humanity, but you're also reading about politics and then that somehow ends right. up in the thing. Yeah. yeah. So what are the politics? Is it a kleptocracy mm -hmm. uh, that you're, that the characters are stumbling into? Well, what does that mean? What is a kleptocracy? How do you build a kleptocracy in a D&D game and make it feel like it's a real thing or an yeah. oligarchy or a theocracy or a majocracy, which doesn't exist in the real world because we don't really have magic in this world. Or maybe we do and I just haven't found it yet. I but, feel like if anyone would have found it, it would have been right. <laughs> I am a wizard. Yes. So when it comes to magic systems and things like that and building that into D&D, I don't do a lot of that because D&D has in its very bones a, a, a sort of tried and true magic system that I don't try to tamper with. Now, I've gone um, Matt Mercer's route and introduced things like blood magic mm -hmm, and things mm -hmm. like that in the game for added flair. But I've always been impressed with how D&D has so much built baked into it already that it makes it easy for people to create their own worlds mm. just using, you know, the three core rules. What's there? Like, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, being in my position, is unique because I have to create new things to add on to the game on a regular basis. And... Is there a pressure there? Do you feel a sense of, because it's obviously fun work for you. And I loved, yeah. I loved your answer about, I don't feel the need to have to escape from D&D. &D. Um, because anytime you encounter someone who loves what they do so much that they feel that way, it's, I mean, what that's, that's what we're all striving towards is to, right. to do something that we love yeah. so much. And we've had people at Wizards of the Coast, um, you know, they, they've, they've come and gone, they've worked on the game, they've, they've done amazing things with D&D, but they leave because they feel they need to go and do something else. Hmm. Um, they're, they want to create their own game or uh, uh, they, they have an idea for, uh, for some 
campaign setting that they want to build, but it doesn't sync up with what Fit Wizards in. is doing all the right. I've never felt that. Hmm. I've always felt I can just go from project to project and be engaged and immersed in that project uh, simply because I'm working on D&D. Wow. It is a luxury, I think, to find something that I'm so passionate about that I don't feel like I have to divorce myself from it yeah. at any time. Wow. Other than to make sure my dog is well taken care of. Y- yes, of course. I of guess course. He's, he's my escape from D&D. But even then, like you said, that that escape is still part of your process and yeah. it's still part of your writing process yeah. and your creative thing, which I think is cool. Yeah. When I'm in the shower, when I'm, you know, regardless of what I'm doing, if I'm baking, if I'm frying an egg, I'm thinking about D&D mm-hmm. and I don't feel like it's intruding upon me. Interesting. Because there's so it's many. in your a- DNA. There's so many aspects of D&D. And, and part of it is it's, I think it's purity, which I, I, I don't feel like I'm wasting my time when I'm thinking about right, D&D because right. the work that I can put into it, thinking about it, will actually make me happy and make other people happy. And if if that's what I'm in the business of doing, that's pretty good. That's a great thing. That's you, not bad. Yeah, because that's it's such an interesting gig. You know that at the at the end of the supply chain, mm-hmm. right? It starts in your mind, it starts at a table with a bunch of you, it starts wherever it does. Yeah. But you guys know that at the end of that supply chain is people gathered around a table with each other. Right having fun and going on an adventure and telling stories. Yeah, and that aspect of storytelling is not something you can separate from humans. That's just part of who we are. Yes. And I don't care who you are, everybody tells stories mm-hmm. in one way, shape, or form. Yeah. And, and D&D provides a way to do that in the company of friends that is safe and exciting. And you leave those games thinking about it and it, it becomes lodged in you. Like I have conversations with uh, fellow players about things that happened in our lives that didn't really happen. They <laughs> happened in the game, but they are as real mm. an experience in our minds as anything that really happened to us. That time when, you know, the the bard had to decide whether to save the cleric or the barbarian who were lying face down in pools of their own blood while an ogre was staring him down in the face. What did the bard do? He ran away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody remembers that. It's just lodged in in the same place that real memories are stored. Wow. And it is as exciting and uh, wonderful a reminiscence as anything that's real. Anything that's actually. I'm in the business of creating products that create those kinds of stories. Adventure writing has always been my bag. I started writing adventures when I was 11. Yeah, I was going to ask you how that ended up happening. Yeah. Did, so, you, did you read a lot of stuff and then the adventure stuff? And then you were like, I, I wanna, that's what I want to do. Basically. Yeah. I found my first D&D book in a smoke shop next to a bunch of porno mags. Uh, it was the D&D Monster Manual for first edition. Took that home. Didn't understand the game at all, but I loved all the monster pictures, and I mm. sort of deconstructed my own game of monsters fighting monsters. And then sometime later, I discovered a real store that carried book uh, the D&D line and discovered the old, um, the flimsy little 32-page adventure modules, they yes. were called. Yep. And I devoured those. Wow. And you know what you're like when you're a young kid and you've got too much time on your hands. If you get something that you're really hooked on about, mm-hmm. whether it's an album cover or song ly- with song lyrics on the back, yeah. or if it's a D&D module, you are going to soak Mm-hmm. Every bit of information. Memorized off. cover to cover. Absolutely. Yes. And that's exactly what I did. And realized that after reading a number of these, that there was a formula and that I could probably try to duplicate that. 
Mm. And so through a process, which we people in rhetoric call imitatio. <laughs> Shout out to all the rhetoric majors out there right now who are like, Bubba, one exactly. for us. Yeah. Small digression. I, I first learned that word in a in a university course where uh, my project in order to graduate was to read Milton's Paradise Lost oh, yeah. and create a lost section of the book as though it had been written by Milton. Not hard. Not hard in the least. No, I mean, you're only imitating, you know, yeah, yeah some of the exactly. most iconic yeah. writing of all time. Right. No biggie. Like, write a chapter of the Iliad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, what? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, um, when I was younger, and that's basically what I was doing, is I was imitating these adventures, substituting in things, creating my own dungeons, but basically modeling the framework that they had created, the structure, hmm. like they teach you in screenwriting, you know, read a bunch of scripts yeah. and then copy what you see, exactly. and eventually you'll break the rules, right. and that's fine. Yeah. But learn from somewhere. And that's what I did for a long time. And then the, I discovered, to my joy, that D&D had magazines hmm. where mere mortals could send in submissions and possibly get published. And so that's what I did. At 20? I no, first I got was, published, right? I, I first started sending stuff in when I was way too young. I think I was like 14 or something like really? that. Really? But I first got published when I was 17. 17, okay. Which is fucking young. That's very young. Do you want to know what I was doing at 17? Yeah. Knocking over liquor stores and vending machines yeah. and, uh, you know, uh, running from the cops. And How many bones have you broken? In my body? Yeah. Uh, a finger. Okay. That's it. And I That's skateboarded it. for seven years. I boxed and I played hockey. Oh, okay. my nose too. I think okay. I broke my nose mm. playing hockey. But um, I'm so old that uh, I I grew up as a kid in cars with no seatbelts. I did too. We had mom's arm to stop us yeah. if like she had to slam yeah. on the we brakes. Would, we would be crawling around the the back, like all over the cars, hanging out the windows. It was it's it's amazing that I'm here. So you have a sister. Old, older or younger? She is younger. She's okay. younger. Yeah. So um, you do you were the were you the protective older brother? Mm -hmm. Were you like the let's let's play? I was let's down, I was down in the basement playing D and D. I wasn't you were like I fuck was. Yeah, I'm interested in yeah. what kind of kid walked into that smoke shop. So what what kind of kid were you? When you you, you walk into the smoke shop at eleven, you said, yeah. and, and found the the yeah. the monster manual. 11, yeah. What what kind of what kind of kid were you? I was just a just a, a nerdy little smart kid who uh, you know, my toys growing up were Legos. Mm -hmm. yeah. So create creativity was always a thing that uh, that I engaged in. I, I went to art school, art classes when I was a kid and things mm. like that to, to draw. I never got as good at it as I would have liked. But, right, yeah. Uh, I, was a, I had Star Wars pillow sheets and Star Wars um, wallpaper yeah. in my room. And yeah. I had this big painted mural. My parents let me uh, paint a big mural on my bedroom wall of dragons flying around castles in the sky really yeah. and how old uh, about the same age really yeah whoa and so but when i walked in the store i was i was not looking for yeah a fantasy book to you're trying to score to, some cuban cigars right exactly and when i saw this thing with this dorky ass cover which just caught my eye of dragons and unicorns and the creature that i later figured out is an owlbear on it mm. i uh i was just entranced i had no idea what i was in for I was just standing there flipping through the book and I was going to spend my money on something else. And I saw the price and it looked like exactly how much money I had. Wow. So I just said, okay, I'm going to buy this, this book and figure out what this is. Um, cause I like the art. Yeah. 
It was the art that really spoke to you, and then it later was. you found and, out. And the, and the monsters, they, they were just so weird. Yeah. Like, I flipped to the page, and there's, like, a chest with a mouth and tentacles coming out of it, and I'm like, okay, I, I'm in. I haven't seen that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I yeah. believe it. And so I took it home and just read it cover to cover, and then and, and pretty much every D&D book from then on read cover to cover. I still remember things that are just permanently lodged in my head. Like, I know the first edition Medusa has six hit dice in the monster manual but oh wait if you go to the basic game it has four hit dice <laughs> yeah it's like that that information is just trapped yeah i cannot get it it's out gonna if I be in there forever because I, I i absorbed it all at that age but when i was 17 i finally had a submission that was accepted mm. uh, by the editors of the magazine and um did you have a lot that weren't before that a did few. you did you yeah, experience rejection in that way yes but I, the, the editors were always very good i always got a response even if it was a form, mm-hmm. it was always a response with some sort of constructive feedback of something that could be improved upon. Wow. So I always felt like I should keep going. It's so weird. I'm, I'm reading a book on statistics and randomness right now. And Me too. the fact that things could have played out completely differently if stuff had happened just in another order. Like for instance, hmm. or I try to imagine, like I was rejected 10 times and accepted on the 11th time. If I had been accepted the first time and then rejected the next 10 times, I probably would have stopped. Why? Why? Because I would have been tricked into thinking, well, I guess that was it. That was like, mm. a, like a, a pity acceptance or something. Or like, I struck gold and I, I, can't, gold I can't lightning and, and, yeah. and clearly I'm not going to do it again. Yeah. But the fact that it was failure, 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 success. I think that me- that taught me something that you fail to find success. Mm. If I had succeeded and then been greeted with a sequence of failures, I think the lesson would have been completely different in my young mind. And I probably would have thought, okay, I had my moment, time to get real, time to to think about something else, something else to occupy my time. Um, And that didn't happen. In those, in the the time of that 10 submissions that didn't get, did you ever think about I'm like, I'm going to stop saying these. It's like, you know, you get no. five, you go, or is it like, no, I'm doing yeah. it. Yeah. I felt like since they were responding to me, yeah. that yeah. I, I'm, I'm okay. I keep sending stuff in. Mm. And the responses I were getting were not like, kid, give it up. It was uh, like, keep going, but here's yeah. maybe a better direction. Right. Yes. And then university came along and that sort of interfered with my productivity as colleges and such do. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in that. So you have this whole side of you, and it's not that they're disconnected, but you have this whole side of you that is obsessed with and wanting to play in that fantasy world mm-hmm. and to contribute to it. Yes. And then this other side of you that is the math and the speech writing and that whole thing. Yeah. So I'm very right brain, left brain yeah. sort of equal. Yeah. It's it's an unusual combination, but actually it's a really good combination for people who make who put together books mm. like we do. Mm-hmm. Because our books are even though they're built on imagination and creativity they're like textbooks they are yeah they really are there's math there's, there's math. <laughs> science and, there's and, like... and the presentation is important and the, the how you phrase things is important because you're dealing with rules and you need crystal clarity in how the rules are written so there's mm-hmm. no fights at the table right that kind of thing um there's statistics for monsters and so you really do need a left brain and a right brain to put these things together properly. Mm. And the people who don't have that struggle the most getting really? these books to the finish line. Yeah. Um, so I'm very fortunate to have had to have developed 
um, a very my creative and my logic brains pretty equally. Yeah, um, and I people say they ask me. I used to be a teacher for a number of years. Yeah, I taught high school, and then I taught adults who had gone back to get their high school diplomas. To get their diplomas, yeah. Which was, by the way, a great way to end your end my teaching career. Yeah, students who actually wanted to be there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. A little bit different of an audience. Exactly. Right. But uh, I taught English and I taught math, and that threw a lot of people off because usually, if you're in the English department, you're not in the math department. Mm -hmm. Most those mm -hmm. things never meet. Um, but I like jumping back and forth between the two. Yeah. And when I'm working on a project, I like jumping back and forth between the right and left sides of my brain. Mm. Like, I'm going to take a break now and just do some number crunching mathematical stuff. Now I'm going to go off and do the creative writing. It's it, it yeah. it's it helps you rejuvenate. I was just going to say, it probably keeps you from burning out. Exactly. Either, that's that's either precisely end. what You can just like. sort of like put shift the weight. Yeah. Shift the weight to each different right. side. Yes. And if somebody yeah. comes with a problem that needs to be solved, I can usually solve it regardless of whether it's a a rules-oriented, mathematical-oriented problem, or a more narrative story-building mm. thing. Yeah. Um, but when you when you were submitting that stuff, and then you're a teenager, and then you're prepping to go to college because you know mm -hmm. that like that's what you do. Did you ever think? Because you you probably had that plan in place to go to school, but then like, did you ever think that those submissions and that thing that you were sending off would one day? be your entire career yes. like oh, you yes. did? Oh, yeah. Um, so when I was 13, my next door neighbor, David Harris, had a basketball net over his garage. And we would just play basketball in the driveway. Mm -hmm. like a lot of good Canadian boys do. Yeah. Um, and we asked each other where we, I don't remember what he said he was going to do when he grew up, but he asked me what I was going to do. And I told him I was going to work for TSR and D&D. Wow. And he, he, was the, he was the guy I played D&D with occasionally. Yeah. And um, it, was, it was kind of a joke. But it wasn't, because hmm. as soon as I said it, I pretty much decided that that was going to be my course of action. Everything that I did was going to be laser focused toward that end, which is hard. I look back on that and I go, well, that seems unlikely. A Canadian <laughs> boy, you know, yeah, thinking he's going to one day work on this game uh -huh. made by this American publisher in the middle of Wisconsin. That seems unlikely. But the reaction I, when I was submitting stuff to the editors, they were so gracious um, once they got to know me. And I think they responded to something. If they asked for a change, I would make it. Yeah. No questions asked. Yeah. That, that's just a professional yeah. thing. I think they realized pretty early on that they could deal with me mm. and that maybe there's something there. This kid doesn't seem like he's a, a diatant. Yeah. He's, he's, he's really interested he in getting notes, better. He takes notes. He understands. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I he think wants that, to be better. And the, and the people I look for, the people I want to work with are like that. Mm. They're, these people, the, the best people to work with are not only the people who are just great human beings, um, who you always want to surround yourself with, yeah. but they have got a, they've got a, a method to their madness and a methodology and a professionalism, and they, they take things like deadlines seriously. Right. Um, and they, they'll, they'll kill themselves to, to, make that it, happen. to, to make it happen. That's, that was me. Yeah. And... Whatever they wanted, I did. Hmm. Any feedback, if they needed me to cut it down by half of what I sent, I would do it. I yeah. don't know how I would do it, but I would do it. You would make it work. Exactly. And so with each submission, I think they were training me to be better at the things that they knew I could be good at. And so by the time I was in college and starting to pitch ideas, 
they were getting accepted more often than not because I had figured out the game. Mm. And there is a game to, to everything. Yes. Right? Yes. Once you understand the rules behind the real game going on, uh, which is often obscured by curtains and mm-hmm. you know other things. Smoke, mirrors. Yeah, exactly. Yes. You know, and this applies across all yeah. applications. Yeah. But for me, it was, okay, I figured this system out. I know what the editors want, so I'm going to give them what they want. And I'm in your I'm, own voice. And I'm paying attention to what the com- what's coming out. Mm-hmm. I'm reading every issue of the magazine that's coming out, and I'm seeing what's been published. Mm. So I'm not giving them stuff they've done before. Yeah, because you know the material exactly, oh, and so I'm looking for holes. Yeah, what are they missing? I mm. kept asking myself, I'm going to write something. What are they missing? Mm. And that's that's a that's a weird way of looking at writing. It's like I'm on the one hand, I am writing because I enjoy it, but I'm also writing for other people. Right, and yeah. that's my life. I'm not right. This isn't a vanity project. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm creating something to sell to others, mm. and that means that it's got to have the things that they want. Right. And that's that drives a lot of our storytelling in yeah. Wizards of the Coast. We don't see ourselves as a vanity press. Mm. We're not doing these books for us. We're doing these books for the fans. Yeah. And we're trying to anticipate what they want based on what we're hearing from them. Mm-hmm. So if a story, if we don't think a story is going to resonate with them, we won't do it. Mm. And so there are a lot of stories that I have in my head that probably will never see the light of day because I don't think they're the right story for the... For the public. Yeah. Do you ever put those into your own game? Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah if it works. If it works. If it works. It, uh, you know, every, every game group is made up of characters and players who've got their own little stories and things. And as a DM, I feel it my responsibility to make sure that the campaign that's unfolding around them is plugged into their characters. Mm -hmm. The things that are happening will resonate with the players and the characters, so it's all very much programmed. You can't just take that campaign and then hand it off to another group and expect it to resonate the same way. Exactly, yeah. And so uh, it's a a bit of a trick in writing books for D&D because you have to make sure that the content you're putting in is going to appeal to as many people as possible Mm -hmm. and isn't so narrow. Mm that only a very small fraction of the groups out there can actually use it and yeah. plug it into play. Knowing that you wanted to do this and that you were saying, I'm, it's, it's happening, this is what I'm doing, how did the decision to still go to college for speech writing and all that stuff, like, did you know... I need to get an education and I want to do it this way. I'm only going to do something that's going to help this dream I already have. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's very much the way I was thinking. But I was also thinking, boy, you better have a better backup plan. Backup plan. Everybody always says like. And I I don't think my parents would have just let me just run around naked with my underwear on my head perpetually. Yeah. Uh, They wanted me to have a plan. Mm. And so. Were they supportive of your love of. Fantasy and they RPGs and... Honestly, I don't think they really got it. And to some extent, maybe still don't get exactly what it is. Yeah. But I sort of got... Literally, as soon as I got the first paycheck for something that was accepted for the magazines, it's like, oh, fine. He can do it. Really? Yeah. yeah. Once they, they see... totally support you. Yep. <laughs> it's real dollars? American dollars? <laughs> Holy shit. Even back then. Yeah, exactly. Well, back then. Yeah. <laughs> back then. Here's a new typewriter. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's crazy. I did all my submissions on an old typewriter. You did? Do you and still have it? I, my parents do. They do? Yeah. And Can I buy it from you for $10,000? That's a legendary typewriter, man. I could I could turn yeah. that around for at yeah. least like, you know, 11000 yeah. 
My parents will take that money, but yeah. I'll give it to them. <laughs> I don't want to give it yeah, to you. Yeah, it's great. It's great. And I had to thread all the ribbons myself. And, yeah. you know, it, and, but I, I. Isn't I, there something amazing about yes. that feeling, though? Yes. I, I, can, 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 I have can, five can, or can, six can, typewriters, yeah. and um, a, a couple of them work still. Yeah. And I've got. A 65, I've got a 1965 typewriter that still works really well, but you have to feed the, you have to like feed the ribbon yourself mm -hmm. and everything. And sometimes, yeah, I write a lot of poetry, I yeah. write a lot of prose stuff, and every once in a while, there's just, there's nothing like that feeling. I get right. tired of a, a digital screen in front of me. I want it, I, I want agree. that paper. Yes. I want, I want the danger of knowing I have to fucking throw this whole piece of paper away. Oh, we'll recycle. We would connect over typewriters. Dude, yes. I know, man. Holy shit. I know. Um, yeah, so I still, it's still a thing that is in my parents' house. Mm. And um, you used it to was, write those on there. And it was hard because every time the editors would have asked for revisions, the thing, of course, of course, you have to type it all again. And so you don't have any of this word processor stuff. Uh -huh. um, so all my early submissions are on that. I still have the typewritten manuscript of the first submission that I sent. To Dungeon? Ooh, dungeon, yeah. You do? I still do. I Can I it. buy that off of you? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I would give it up. I would give it up for, That's for history. That's crazy. Yeah, I still have that in a file cabinet with a with two big manila folders full of rejection letters. So you saved those. Why? I do. Even though you didn't... So 10 is a lot, but it's not really for, for writers. I got... I got... I got... Um, more than that. You did. Okay, obviously. so that Later was just on. the yeah. beginning of My that. odds okay. got better. Okay. Oh yeah, time. yeah. Uh, because but, you were published and But yeah. Yeah. Every, every you know, you know it's like you throw 10 ideas up against the wall and only one's going to stick at best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At best. But uh, I still have all of those because I don't know why I still have all of those. Do you ever over the years have you taken them out and reread them? Yeah. I have. In what moments would you choose some to go of those do that? Are so Bad. I mean, I could, you <laughs> can like, understand you. why the editors rejected them. Yeah. But what was it that drew you to go pull those out of the file cabinet and read them again? Is it a low time, um, a high time? That, um, usually it's a, a time when I think it might be helpful to somebody. Yeah. Like I can, if somebody is struggling, I, I think last time I brought them out actually was to actually post the stack on Twitter. Oh. Like I just posted the two manila folders stacked on top of one on top of the other to show how tall it was. Wow. Um, and I posted that on Twitter and with the idea that, hey, you're, you're going to get rejected, but the number of rejections doesn't matter. Mm -mm. And every rejection is a step forward. Right. If you think of it that way. Yeah. Um, it's, it's carrying you to a, a place where hopefully uh, you can improve your work. Hmm. Uh, and honestly, I, I think that we need a dose of realism in, in, our, in this profession. Not everything you do is great. Right. And I think it's okay. Yeah, and you need to be comfortable, and I need to be comfortable in a place where I can say that's not good. Mm. We need to revisit that. This thing, this product we're working on, it sucks. We need to do something about this. Yeah, and part of that desensitization mm -hmm. comes from the experience I had of okay, people are telling me when my work sucks and when it's good, and that honesty is important. So you like to translate that to your team and go, I'm I, I'm doing you a favor by yeah. not blowing smoke up your ass and saying like, right. oh, this will, this is fine or it'll pass or right. it's good enough. Yeah, it doesn't mean you're cruel. Yeah, but just here here is the feedback. Do with it what you will. Mm. And I try you try to be as constructive as possible. And I always felt like I got constructive feedback. Yeah. So if I can provide some, that's great. You know, you know from firsthand experience yeah. 
how helpful it is. Yeah. Now, the curse of our business is we're often so busy, we don't have as much time to provide feedback as we'd like. Mm. Like, I, I work with a number of freelancers, and I don't always get the chance to say, here are the 10 things you did extremely well, and here are the 10 things where you can improve. But um, we're, we're learning our processes. We're changing. Skype. Skype is Working huge. together on yeah. Skype is fun because you can get feedback in real time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Something. I, that's, the, that's the weird thing. I'm so old. <laughs> there was no internet. I know. When I started in the business. Yeah. There, we wrote letters back and forth to people, and you had to wait weeks Mail. to get responses. Mail. Right? Mm -hmm. And so revisions took forever. And, and any sort of reaction, you didn't know when it was going to come. I certainly didn't. Yeah. Now it's so instantaneous. And people have so many more resources at their mm -hmm. disposal. When I was a little kid in Canada trying to figure out how am I going to get, how am I going to start up my career in publishing, I had the magazines and yeah. that was it. Yeah. Now people can reach out to each other and share their projects with one another instantaneously in so many different forms. I don't know necessarily if that's all good or all bad. I think there, there's a downside to it. Column A, column B, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah, a little now bit of both. Now there's so much material mm -hmm. and so much coming so quickly that you don't get that attention maybe, mm. that I got as mm. a young writer. Yeah. Editors are too busy. Yeah. Thing. They're reading too many emails. Too many submissions. Too, too much many, coming in. Yeah, the access, the access is so much easier mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. Um, and there are just more venues uh, to, to publish material. When... D&D used to be pretty, pretty much the only role-playing game in town when I was growing up. Wow. But now yeah. there are role-playing games. There's everything. All kinds of things. There's everything. Yeah, so. There was a period where I didn't write fiction well. I, I couldn't, I, I, I mean, maybe I still can't, but I, I had a hard time. It had to be grounded in some sort of reality for me. Later I figured out that I can use that same reality to create a fictional story. But so I would often just tell actual stories of things that happened. And um, what triggered the writing of your book, Black and White? What was the what was the spark that got you started on that? I'm I, just curious. I got out of a pretty bad relationship. I had a habit of choosing people that weren't not just not weren't right for me, but that treated me poorly. Okay. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that in my yeah. backstory. But uh, I, I used to I used to only kind of choose people that were bad to me, I guess okay. you could say. And I got out of this relationship and I had a roommate who told me, um, you know, you love writing. I think you should maybe try to process the end of that relationship in, in a piece of writing, okay. you know? And this is after a lot of conversations. And I sat down and just wrote out this one story. Um, it's in the book, it's called yeah. Cloud Nine. It's this one story about this couple and allegorical for our relationship. and. Uh, I immediately felt like I had begun the process of grieving and sort of mourning and moving on from that relationship. And that piece that I wrote had triggered that for me. Okay. And I, that's when I realized there is a there is a definite connection between my writing and my emotional health and my emotional process and my growth as a person and my character growth. And I was sort of addicted after that. And I went, I'm gonna sum up the last five years of my life by doing a series of these things. And that's how it kind of ended up happening. So do you feel like when you're not writing, that changes your mood or yes. your productivity or your ability to function as a human being? Yes. Yeah. Do you? Yes. 
I will get very Howard Hughes very fast. There will be jars Same. full of pee. The yeah. beard gets crazy. Um, you know, my fiance lives 3,000 miles away most of the year, yeah. and so I don't have someone there going like, you got to write, buddy. Hey, you got to uh, take a shower, buddy. Yeah, you got you to, <laughs> yeah, shit's starting to get a little crazy. Yeah, yeah you find that too? Absolutely. I go crazy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I can't get away from it. Mm. And not everything that I write ends up being in the public Right, world. same, same, yeah. It's just, it's got to happen. There, the, just the, the sheer act of writing has to occur. Mm. Otherwise, I'll start to yeah. lose my tethers too. Start taking the paint off the wall with a toothbrush and right. hanging upside yeah. down. And uh, Fortunately, there's, there's lots of, I've, I've sort of built this construct of, you know, if I'm not working on a book or if I'm stymied on a book for some reason or it's in a holding pattern, I've got instantly other things I go to. There's my campaign. Yes. You know, yeah. that's the next thing I go yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I don't feel like writing for my campaign, then it's this other writing project mm -hmm. that's off on the sides. It's this screenplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. this Dungeons and Dragons movie screenplay or yeah. whatever. Or Can I read that? Fiction moon I've, I've got three science fiction ones based on the Star Frontiers role-playing game. Really? Yeah, I do. Dude, yes. Screenwriting is uh, like adventure writing. How, yeah, I was going to ask you, how do you find... How do you find that screenwriting versus the books? So similar, um, because uh, it books our books are like I said are so structured, mm -hmm. um, and the way that they're built to make them friendly to DMs and to just sort of feel like an extension of our game requires that they be built a certain way with a certain in, uh, infrastructure. Right. Screenplays have an infrastructure, but within that structure, there's a lot of playroom. There's it's room. like a sandbox, yeah. really. Mm -hmm. And once once you realize that, you can have a lot of fun in that space without violating all the tenets of, mm. of of screenwriting or adventure writing. So I I can hop between the two, and I feel like I'm using the same parts of my brain to do the same tasks. You know, certain things have to happen at certain times. You know, yeah, in a in a screenplay, mm -hmm. because the audience watching it is trained to react a certain way when they're in the, the movie theater, right? You know, if 30 minutes go by and that thing that's supposed to happen hasn't happened yet in the screenplay, the audience is going to know and something is going to, something's going to happen. Yeah. Probably bad. Or if something happens too early and they're not ready yet because right. they don't know people enough exactly. or they don't, yeah, understand yeah. the world. Right. Yeah, exactly. So when you're building an adventure, you're building a story that is open-ended, tells you all of the elements of the story. Here's the villain. Here's what the villain's doing. Here's the conflict when the characters arrive, the, the, sort of the state of things yeah. when the characters arrive. Here are the places that they can go. Here's what's in those locations. And here's what might happen when they get to each of those locations. Mm -hmm. And here are possibilities for how this adventure might end. But an adventure is a novel without a protagonist. Right. It, there, we don't tell you who the heroes are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and... We have things like, okay, well, if this adventure is for levels one to five, you have to make sure there's enough experience points in the adventure for the characters to get to level mm. five by the end. Mm. And you have to stagger those out so they're getting them over the course of the adventure. By the end of this chapter, they have to be this level or they have to obtain this item or this mm. other thing has to happen. There's, there are structures in place in adventure, but you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Because chaos what, involved. what you're doing is you're essentially writing an outline, a very detailed outline that somebody else can then take and run. Mm. With a screenplay, you're handing it off to the director. The director is taking that and running with it. Yeah. Um, and creating their own story out of that. 
their structure. own vision and translation of it. Given. So right. there's there is a lot of similarity between the two. So I have I don't have much trouble juggling back and forth between one and the other. Now I don't I'm not necessarily a great screenwriter. Yeah, neither am I. Um, but I've had much less practice. How old were you then when you said I have to make the move to the U.S. and like really this is happening? Okay. So it was after college. Yeah, it was after university, and I was teaching at the time. Hmm. And my last, I guess, my last year of teaching, which would have been the adults. And I, I, this is a, a digression, but it's, it's just kind of cute. Um, in my last year, one of my students was a 93-year-old Jamaican woman who had gone back to get her high school diploma. 93? Yes. And every wow. Friday, she would come in with food, huh. like a plate of lasagna or a plate of chicken and just feed the entire class. I don't know why that sprung into my mind. Wow. But it's just, um, I miss her. So I'm sure she's gone now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, if yeah. she's not, we need to find her and yeah. find out what her secret is. Right. But she she will undoubtedly be a character in a future adventure. Wow. Yeah. 93 went back to get That's know, brave. Yeah. By the way. That's brave. That is brave. Yeah. I love that you still get to teach. You still get mm -hmm. to teach. You yeah. still get to write. You still get to be in, have history and politics and all that stuff in what you do. You manage to carve out a career for yourself that touches on everything that you are interested in and that you care about. Well, not, not to jump ahead, feel, yeah. but I actually wrote my current job description. You did? Yeah. It, at I, what I point? Getting, How did that happen? Once you, when you're with Wizards for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. People are like, wow, he's figured it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, fine, you tell us what so, you're going to be doing. That, that's basically... Uh, Basically, what they said is, okay, um, what job do you want to have? You've yeah. got, we were in a state where I was, we were transitioning between fourth and fifth editions. Yeah. And I was, I was juggling a lot. I was doing magazine stuff. I was doing editing stuff. I was doing development. I was doing writing. I was doing uh, creative direction. And they said, okay, 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 okay. Yeah. What, what can we take off your plate? What do you want to do? Write your own job description. Come back to us. That's your new job. Mm. And that's basically what I'm doing now. Wow. But to answer your previous question, 1997. Okay. I. You were almost 20. I. Yeah. Right. And uh, 1997, I was called by Pierce Waters, who was on the periodicals team at TSR. Mm. And he asked me if I wanted the job as the editor of Dungeon Magazine, which I had written for yes. for a number of years. I kind of knew it was coming. It wasn't a surprise because I had heard that the then editor was going to be leaving mm. and that they might be looking around for a replacement. And I was hoping. So when I got the call, I said yes immediately. This was, I got the call while I was at school. And he said, that's great. Don't move to Wisconsin. We've just been bought by Wizards of the Coast. I said, What's Wizards of the Coast? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I had not heard of Magic the Gathering. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah at yeah, all. Yeah. yeah. Um, and none of my students were playing it because they were all ninety-three years old. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, I quickly went on what passed for the internet in those days and looked up Wizards of the Coast and found out as much as I could about them and discovered that they were in Washington mm. State. 
which was very far away from where I lived. But still, very but that close didn't concern me at all. Still very close still to Canada. Still very close to Canada. And plus, I knew everything about Washington State because I'd seen Twin Peaks. Oh yeah, you were covered. Yeah, I was. You I was were. You were set. Yeah. yeah, you're fine. I knew, and I'm like, yeah, that's weird. I yeah, love that place. <laughs> and so uh, I said yes, and and then proceeded to move out while TSR was still trying mm. to figure out what the hell was going on in Wisconsin. I was out as a TSR employee, now working for Wizards of the Coast on the magazines, mm. waiting for the rest of TSR to show up. And that job, editor of Dungeon Magazine, is probably, that was my dream job. Wow. Absolutely. I, I respected the editors who had come before me because they'd been so instrumental in my success yeah. and been so comforting to me as, as a growing professional trying to find his way. Yeah. But it never, it never ceased to surprise me on some level that I was there because what is the likelihood of some Canadian boy ending up in Washington state work, basically running the magazine that got him started in the business? Right. Yeah. Like that is the odds, yeah, are, the odds ast- are fucking astronomical. Did you ever call David that you play basketball with and said, I did it. He reached out to me a number of years later after he got a job in New York huh. um, for a law firm, I believe. And he had seen my name somewhere out yeah. of blue connected with the game and couldn't believe it. Uh, it was just, because how often, like you said, how often does the 13-year-old version of ourself who says, this is what I'm going to be when I grow up, right. end up becoming yeah. that thing? And I look back now and I think, my God, that kid had such a laser focus. I don't know how. Mm. I don't think, I don't even think I have that now. It's, it's, <laughs> I know, I think well, about that I, too. I think I've kind of let that go. Yeah. But uh, it was it was neat. And, and this is another slight aside. One of the first emails I got in the job as the new editor of Dungeon Magazine was from some guy, but I kept it because it grounded me. What do you mean? What was it? Bring back Dragonlance, you fuck. <laughs> was the sum total. It was from Liam O'Brien. The- <laughs> <laughs> was the sum total of the email. And I thought, oh man, I made it. Yeah. Wow. Now, now I'm catching shit. Wow. For, yeah. For man. something I don't even control. Like, no. Dra- Dragonlance is a very popular D&D world for yes. those who don't know. It's, yes. it's spawn novels and mm-hmm. and, thing, and all sorts of uh, crazy media things. Um, I had nothing to do with it. It was part of TSR, of course, and would probably be resuscitated in a matter of years. But I like the fact that somebody pegged me specifically and said that it was my fault that Dragonlance had not been you know, well taken care of. Yeah, you're the guy in charge. But, so yeah. yeah, but that sort of that sort of grounded me and said, okay, it's it's heaven, but with a slice of a little dose of mm. reality to get yeah. my feet on the ground. Now I've got to do right mm. by this brand. In the 20 years since, I've tried to remember that I am not the creator of D and D. Right. Um, I came along after you know two editions had already been out and done reasonably well i'm a custodian hmm. of D, and my job and the job of the people who work with me is to do right by the game and do right by the people who love the game hmm. and in storytelling what that translates to is i've got to make sure that our stories are respectful of the people who are playing the game are respectful to the legacy of the game and its overall you know, nostalgic elements if yeah. we go back and we we bring some bit of nostalgia back mm-hmm. that we treat it fairly. Mm-hmm. And then with, with my storytelling in particular, I'm a big fan of looking into the past and bringing it forward, but then putting a little bit of a spin on it. Right. So everything old is new again. Yeah. Yeah. So take, take, take an adventure that resonated in the past. What can that adventure say today? Mm. And what can we do with that adventure to make it uh, familiar, but different? 
Not just bring it back for nostalgia's exactly. sake, but to make it yeah. because it serves a purpose now. Right, and yeah. adventures are like time capsules or any piece of literature. They're written in the year that they're written in, and they mm -hmm. resonate hopefully in that year. If they've if they've got a legacy or they're loved, there's something about them that's magical right. to somebody. Yeah, and how can we preserve that mm. while at the same time reaching out to a new group of fans who are now internet connected? Their sensibilities have changed. Their sense of what you expect to see in a fantasy story has changed. Yes. I mean, you can't just sell the same shit all the time. No, there's it, um, there's too much, the saturation level is too yes. much. Yeah. And also, we've just grown and changed. Um, we're much more diverse mm -hmm. than we were. Uh, you know, you can't expect people to fall in love with characters that they don't know mm. and don't relate to. Mm. And the D&D audience has grown immensely and is a wonderfully diverse group of people across age spectrums because we're a multi-generational mm -hmm. game now mm -hmm. you know we've got 14 year olds 24 year olds 34 year olds 44 year olds 54 year olds 64 year olds 74 year olds playing this game yep. 84 year olds 94 year olds um after 45 years that's to be expected parents are teaching their kids how to play the game a game now has to relate to both mm. parent and mm. child it is diversifying a whole yeah. all different types of right. people. That's not to say that the that it there weren't all sorts of people playing it back then. No, of course either, not. But yeah. yes, the now that it's more accessible and there isn't the satanic panic and there isn't right. a, because of the internet and because of shows and things like that, a lot of people who maybe wouldn't have been exposed to D and D are now yes. exposed to it. Yeah, I guess that's a better like way of role me saying. Have it. demystified the game for a lot more people, and so sure, we yeah. are getting we getting are getting a, a very very different audience. Sure. Yeah, but that's got to be cool to see. It is. It, it's got to be. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's great to try to um, figure out what stories are going to make these people, mm. this 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 delightful fan base happy. Yeah. Um, but so going back to my career a little bit, one of the things that irks me, and there's nothing really anybody can do about it, is. I often think of, would I have gotten to where I am, to the position I am, where I'm crafting my own job and telling these stories and being able to connect with all these people at conventions and online, if I was not white hmm. and a dude? And I think the answer is probably no. You do? I do. And I think that's sad. Hmm. I, I don't think there should be any barrier like that. Right. To success. Yeah. Yeah. And so now that I am in my 50s and at the, honestly, the, the downward slope of the bell of, of the roller coaster. On is, paper, maybe, Chris. On paper, maybe. But, you know, <laughs> within striking distance of retirement. Like, I am the age my parents were when they first started talking about retirement. Really? Yeah. Mm. Um, and so that I'm, I'm aware of that fact. I'm also aware of the fact that as a custodian of a 45-year-old game and brand, it is my responsibility and a responsibility I happily accept to try to figure out who the next custodians are going to be. Mm. And so a lot of my mental bandwidth when I'm not working on creative pursuits is trying to figure out who is going to usher in, who's, who's going to take my place, who's, who's going to come in and make this game speak to the next mm. bunch of people who come in. And so... I'm still trying to figure that out. But I want mm. I want the people working on the game to also reflect the people playing the game. Yes. 
what are the tenets of that person or peoples that you would trust to carry on the game That's and to move question. it forward? What 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 are those pillars you're looking for? Empathy, hmm. the ability to um, understand why people feel the things the way they do and how you can make them feel better playing the game, recognizing what the game's power is to bring joy to the world mm. and find ways to heighten that. So I think empathy is huge. The professionalism aspect is critical. Like you said, meeting deadlines. Yes, and, it yeah. is so it is, it's so dull to say, but the deadline is king. Mm-hmm in any real professional business and make no mistake, we are a corporation. Yeah. You know, yeah. we've got shareholders mm-hmm. above and beyond what we do for the fans. Yeah. We've got to be successful to our shareholders. Mm-hmm. And so the only way that happens is books get out on time and other projects get out on time. And we're so synchronized now. Our stories are transmedia oriented. Right. So a, a story gets carried over in digital games and our business partners, all that has to sync up. And so if one deadline falls, the thing starts to crumble. Mm. It's a bad experience and it looks like we don't know what we're doing. Right. So the combination of empathy and a sense of professionalism, but also even though Wizards is a company of some 600 people, that's also answerable to a company of several thousand people. Yes, yeah. Uh, the D&D team is small. We currently number about two dozen. Really? Yeah, and oh. that's everybody who works on D&D. Wow. Uh, that's our creative. That's our marketing folks. That's our licensing folks, our producer, digital producers who work with our digital partners. Mm-hmm. We're a very, very small team within Wizards of the Coast. And because of that, you can't have a dysfunctional team person mm. on that mm-hmm. team. Otherwise, the whole thing. It's too small. Yeah, yeah. It's way too small. Yeah. So that's the third thing. Besides empathy and professionalism, this ability to basically integrate into the team, bring something to the team that the team doesn't have while still being able to function in this chaotic clockwork office Mm -hmm. environment. And Mm -hmm. so really that's it. Beyond that, I think that D&D is strongest when the custodians are people who know the history of the game and are sensitive to the history of the game. They're not just gonna throw out 45 years to do something completely different. Not like, oh, that's the old guard. Yeah. We've got this fresh. Yeah. yeah. So one of the big challenges for me is I I, ha- I contain within this fat head of mine a lot of institutional memory mm. that needs to be disseminated and given turned put into other people's heads. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that uh, they know the history of, mm. of the game and what we've tried before and failed at. Yeah. And we failed. Many times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've I learned from our failures. Uh, I think writing, any any sort of creative endeavor builds on failure mm-hmm. more than it builds on success. You probably know this. Yeah. Um, we're not afraid of failure, and anybody who comes to work with us shouldn't be either. Yeah. The ones that I end up, say, taking from the typewriter and putting down and going, this one's a keeper, it's very often that happens with a trash can not full of crumpled up other ones. So I understand that. I understand yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Do you like running? Games? I do. I do. I do. I'm doing a, I'm co-DMing a game right now okay. with another guy because 
combat's really hard for me. Mm-hmm. I'm a story person. I have one side of my brain that works. The other one, you know, you have both that work. One of mine died in like 1996 <laughs> or something, you know, I was like. Um, There's just a parking lot there now. Yeah, you know how they say if you do acid seven times, oh, you're, you're like yeah. considered, uh, you know, insane or whatever. Um, I thought, yes, but what happens if you double that number? Mm-hmm. No, um, I think eventually I could get more comfortable. You know, I'm still new to the game. I'm right. still two yeah. years. I've only been playing for two years because I grew up in extreme satanic panic. Yeah. Uh, you know, my family's very religious and there yeah. was... Uh, people on staff like that too. Yeah, I'm talking extreme. Like I was in a I was in a bookstore and saw a D&D book and someone from my dad's church was there and was like, oh, you can never, right. ever let him even open oh, okay. one of these. And ever since then, all scrubbed. yeah. And none of my friends growing up played because none of them were allowed to play. I mean, it was a, I, I couldn't tell you if there was a single person in my small hometown who even knew what D&D was, much less played it. And then by the time I grew up and became a musician and moved out and did all these things, it never reached me. No one that I ever met or was around played. And so I'm still learning so much of the mechanics of everything, but I love to write a story and I love to see that we have eight players, sometimes nine. That's a lot. And I like to see them fuck with it. I like it when the story gets fucked with. Because here's the thing, man, I can come up with something amazing Mm -hmm. in my mind that I think is amazing. And you don't realize yet how good it's going to be until, like you said, you put it in the hands of somebody else, that outline, and they take it and run with it. And for me, if it's just my ideas coming out over and over and over again, that's cool, man, but that's gonna get old really fast. Yeah. I I hate writing songs by myself. I hate writing, writing is such a solitary thing, as you know. It does, not in every case, but personal stuff or whatever yeah. your projects are, and music can sort of be the same way. The songs that I do that I feel the best about are the ones I've written with someone else. You know, collaborating unlocks a lot of creativity yes. for me that I that that is stale when it's when it's not there. So I like to see I like to see them mess with the story, and then it causes me to be creative, and I have to go, okay, now I have to change things, and I like this. Yeah. I like where this is going, and then we're all involved too. There are two things that I love. One is when when DMs allow that to happen, and they. At some point during their DM life, it's going to click this sort of natural improv sense, Mm -hmm. this ability to adapt to the sudden changing circumstances, and it becomes almost second nature. Yeah. That, yeah. I don't remember exactly when that happened, but I remember for me, it was like a light bulb Mm -hmm. or a switch that somebody just flipped on the back of my neck says, okay, you have crossed, you you now know how to DM properly. Yeah. And that is, you know, you can just, whatever your idea is, not being married to it. D&D is so strange because it's a shared story experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The players around the table want to want to mess with the story. Yeah. And you kind of want them to. You do. Yeah, you yeah. Do. Yeah. Because, uh, and you and you want you come away from the game feeling just mentally taxed mm-hmm. because your brain's doing gymnastics the whole time yes. trying to keep up with all the players <laughs> uh-huh. and their antics. I find that with the live games. Yeah. After a live game show, particularly if you're playing with players who are like just totally on their game mm-hmm. and funny and but also always pushing you, yeah. pushing you and trying to stretch your story until it snaps. You come, I come away at the end of those games just feeling absolutely so mentally exhausted mm-hmm. that I literally can't remember what happened. It takes time. It yeah. takes time. And then People you're like, come to oh, me yeah. afterward and say, I love that part or when you said this or when this guy did this. And I'm just like, I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Your brain kind of goes like, all right, we're going to rest. Yeah. And then when we come back online... 
hopefully those right. chunks. And then you go home, you go, oh, I got to do this again next week. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen next. I got to think about this. What are all the what if scenarios mm-hmm. um, that I have to sort of, you know, to prepare for the next game because I wasn't expecting it to go in the direction it went. It's a powerful drug. <laughs> it's a powerful drug. It's a hell of a drug. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you look like you have a question. You look like you have a question. question for what, you. what, what? So uh, do you let your music come into your gaming? Man, that's a really good question. Do I write music for the game, you mean? Or. Or Does in, that, in any way. Like yes, a, okay. The, do, those, do those roads cross? They do. They do. And it comes, for me, in the principles. So, for instance, like I, we were talking about collaboration, mm-hmm. and you play with a lot of different musicians. I, I started playing music when I was like 13 years old and up until probably almost 30, and then I took a break, and then I decided a few months ago I'm going to get back into it because it's a, it's a piece of me that I, I need. It's kind of like we are talking about writing, like yeah. I need to write. It's yeah. Music is... I picture it as like two different wings and I need both to be able right. to fly. You feel its absence, right? And for me, there's a difference when you're jamming with people. You can be jamming with people that are incredible musicians and masters of their craft. And it can go well because people understand theory and people understand their place and how they fit into that overall larger picture if you have six people playing at the same time. Um, for me, some of the best moments I've had are with people that weren't masters of their craft. They didn't, they couldn't shred and, you know, like they didn't know everything uh, inside out theory wise, but they had heart, they had vibe. They knew it's okay, this is a moment where I should step in. This is a moment where I should back off. It's very much like improv in that way. And when you're jamming with people like that, or you're in a studio and you're creating something, you're creating a song, you're creating an album, you're creating just a composition and you hit that vein and you hit that flow with those people, that's a drug. Because you're stepping outside yourself, you are open to the collaborative aspect of it, and everyone sort of has an equal piece in making that thing a reality. And And I I take that principle. I I assume there are also greater chance for just surprise. Tons. Oh, like, wow. Tons. What just happened? Yeah. I don't write anything for any medium being closed off to it changing later. Mm. I learned that a long time ago. And so for me, with a piece of writing, I send it to Ashley immediately before I even read back over it. And I say, should I pursue this or not? And she will be very honest with me and say, it feels derivative of this other thing. I think you should just take that other thing and expand on it. Or there's something to this. You should, you should. And so I, 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 I welcome feedback. I need it. I know that if I'm left to my own devices, it's probably going to be okay, but not what it could be if I was open to what would happen that day, the spirit of the day. And it's kind of like when we, when Patrick, the guy I co-DM with, and I sit down for the game, we're aware there's going to be left turns and curveballs, and there's going to be all that yeah. stuff. And we made the decision early on, bring it. We are not going to force a rigid thing because you close yourself off to the truths of storytelling, in my opinion, if you say, I am the only source of this thing and you must play inside of these restrictions. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And in some respects, that's what's always sort of scared me about novel writing is that Mm. I might fall into the trap of losing that sense of uh, willingness to kind of give up some of the Mm -hmm. control or take ideas from other sources and incorporate them in. I've, I've never really been built, bitten by the novel writing bug, but if I were, 
I'd have to really sort of assess how I went about writing a novel to keep it from becoming a, like, I'm just writing this for me, or I'm just um, writing it in a complete isolation. Yeah. And not getting input. Mm. I'd want to get input from somewhere. Yeah. Um, Send it to me, dude. Oh, sure. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> let's go back and forth. <laughs> So you've you've explained in beautiful detail how the use this word again the tenets of what makes the books that yeah. you guys put out work and that they need a formula and they need all that stuff, but you with this small team have to collaborate to make that work. Yes. How does that collaboration work? That's a very good question. So first we get a strategy for the book. Okay, this is what the book is meant to achieve in the market and where its place where it sits amidst the other books in the line. And who's it aimed at? DMs, players, whatever. Uh, new players, new mm -hmm. DMs. All that sorted out. Once we get that, somebody takes the lead on the project and becomes the owner. And that's usually me or Jeremy Crawford, yep. my collaborator. And then we assemble our teams around the books. An art director, who's usually Kate Irwin, is brought in early on. Uh, art director to help get us concept artists if we need them is mm -hmm. brought in. And then we start getting freelancers because mm. because we are a small team, we don't always do the writing ourselves. Occasionally, a schedule will allow me yeah. to take a book and just go off, and mm -hmm. but that's rare. Mm -hmm. More often than not, I have to look at the book, break it down, and then portion it off. Yes, to people. Yeah, uh, freelancers often, and in picking freelancers because our schedules are unforgiving, I don't want. I try to avoid a situation unless there's padding built in the schedule of trying somebody I don't know can do it. Once in a while, the imp in me will go out and say, you know, I'm going to try this person because there's something about them or about their writing that I think is perfect for this book. Mm. Mm. And I know I'm taking a chance and I might regret it later. Yeah. Or I might be pleasantly surprised. Right. Go either way. I just don't know. It's important to take that chance. Every but but by and large, I'm I'm really looking to hook up with freelancers who I know sort of meet the criteria that I talked about earlier, in addition to being able to receive feedback, mm. Mm. which is a, a necessary part of being a professional. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if I tell you I want this change and I give you a reason for it, you can change my mind. But mm. if you don't, make the change. I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. How often do is your mind changed? How often does somebody come in with something that changes often. your mind? Really? Yeah, often. And do you are you pleased by those moments? Yeah, I am. Because like anybody, if you're sort of creating in a vacuum, you're not necessarily aware of ideas that you might be missing mm. or ways to connect things in a new and unusual way. Or you might just have a blind spot. Yeah. Like I sometimes have a blind spot for... Um, I might get to the end of the book and realize, or get to the end of a project and realize, well, I don't have any strong female characters. Oh yeah, you know, in the NPCs that you meet, you know, they're all villains, mm -hmm. or, or like very bad people, or they, they're not behaving as you would want them to behave. And sometimes a freelancer will come in and say, "Hey, um, I'm sorry, I have to point this out to you, but you know, all, all your all your women characters are either horrible, horrible murderesses, or mm -hmm. you know, damsels in distress." So we can do something about that maybe? And I'm like, yes, mm -hmm. yes, we are. Mm -hmm. And thank you for pointing that out for me because mm -hmm. I'm dumb. <laughs> I, I too love those. I, I love those moments. And I loved that because yeah. when you think something's done or when you think mm -hmm. it's good enough and yeah. someone comes along and doesn't just shit all over it, but they go, man, it could be this though. 
I love that because I'm so limited. Yeah. I'm limited to what I've read. I'm limited to the influences that I've allowed into my life. And every person that, if our heart is open enough, joins that conversation is influenced by a whole other set of things. And yeah. to close myself off to that as a creative person, I know I'm not that great. And it's not, it's gonna be limited yeah. to just me. And it's, you know, yeah. I need that collaborative. Yes, and oft, often somebody with just a fresh set of eyes can can show you something that's staring at you right in the face. Yeah. But you're so surrounded by other things that your problems you're trying to solve, be it plot points mm -hmm. or the way the narrative is flowing or something else, that you've either your your brain has compartmentalized it or has just not allowed you to see it. Yeah. And I I, I suffer that a lot, as I'm sure everybody does. And so I, I do rely on having on these partnerships and the, this teamwork to help help keep us all from falling into these traps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so each project is a chance to kind of refine the process a little bit of mm -hmm. how we work with outside people, how to make it easier for them to get material to us, how we can get feedback back to them. Of course, every time you work with somebody new, they have their own way of working and you have to kind of figure it out between you what's yeah. the best way to transmit information back and forth and how should the information be delivered in terms of if I'm going to give you feedback, what's the best way to give you feedback? Mm. It's probably not the best way to give that other person feedback, right. that kind of thing. And so every project is a learning process, but bringing new people in all the time on a project, I think is important, mm. which is why from project to project, I try to shake. I don't use the same freelancers all the time. And part of that is just me being selfish and wanting to work with new people. Give more people opportunities. Yes. Yeah. But part of it is also just alchemy. Mm. Just like finding the perfect game group is alchemy, yeah. so is finding the perfect project group. Mm. Now, most of the people who work in the building are tried and tested. You know, yeah. these, these are people that we have no problem working with. Like you've got your crew and you trust them to look after you, although I don't know why they let you out looking like this. Um, yeah, someone said I, I, someone <laughs> said I look like a substitute teacher on his day off and I'm, no, I'm insecure. No, I'm not one to complain. Um, but <laughs> yeah. But so, uh, but I like I like the, the ability to to try out new people because I'm always thinking about that kid in Canada who mm. you know somebody gave him a chance and gave him a shot and who knows the next person I bring in might be running the company one day might be yeah. heading up the D and D team I just don't know. Mm. Do you think? often about times where you feel like you failed in the job? Um, no, I, I think about it and then I let it go. It's important for your process for you to not beat yourself up over stuff like that right. and I, to go, I don't. let me learn from this and move yeah, on. I, I absolutely do not do that. I don't dwell on the past, period. Mm. I'm, I'm terrible at maintaining old friendships that have, you know, people, I don't talk to anybody from high school. I don't talk to anybody from college. Yeah. I don't talk to anybody from my teaching career. I kind of let the past go. And mm. that very much is true in my work as well. Once I realize I've made a mistake, it gets noted, move on. Mm. Was that a process for you or have you always sort of been that way? Did you, did you used to get hung up on stuff? I don't remember when I wasn't that way. Interesting. If I was that way, it's too far back in history for me to really remember. And I can get frustrated sometimes if it's something stupid, but again, it passes quickly yeah. because what's important now is just making sure it doesn't happen again. What's in front of you. And what's in front of me. Because hmm. I'm very goal oriented and I'm always focused on the, the next thing. Yeah. Part of that has been trained because 
at Wizards of the Coast, you're never working on just one project. You're working on three. Mm -hmm. Just like if you work in network news or anything like that, mm -hmm. there's always several things going on at once. And so one project is entering the concepting phase while the other one is just beginning writing. The third one is in editing and the fourth one is in post-production. Wow. Yeah. So it's like making episodes of a show. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and yeah. so your mind is scattered across those things. You don't have time to worry about the one that's already done. Mm -hmm. You're worried about the four that are staring you in the face saying, help me, help me. Yeah. Yeah. The second I get done editing an episode of this show and I know that it's locked and it's going on and other people will, you know, look at it and do their thing. And then it's going, I, I delete, I delete any memory of it from my computer. Yeah. Yeah. I, because it's like any piece of writing, uh, or a composition, you have to be done with it at some point. Yes. Personally and professionally. You have to say, this is it. Yeah. That's actually an interesting thing. When do you know when something is finished? When are you comfortable going, this is done, now I have to do that thing where I walk away from it? Sometimes it's it's dictated by necessity. It's like, I, my deadline is here, mm -hmm. I'm done. That's it. It's that now simple. is the point I'm finished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But other times it's not always quite that cut and dry. Uh -huh. uh, and and even when a deadline hits, sometimes you do have a chance to go back later mm -hmm. in the process and do things that you wanted to do earlier on. So yeah. Um, for for our books, the deadline really is what, the point when I disconnect is when it goes off to the printer. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't mean it won't come back to me later on. Like somebody will say, "We'll get it," and go, "Ah, oh, I think I found some errata," and I'll go, "Ah, fuck! Of course you did." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew this was coming. <laughs> I knew this was coming. Yeah. Thank you very much. So, but that's different. Yeah, and, and I can I can uh, look at that dispassionately. Mm -hmm. I've I've disconnected myself emotionally from the product once it leaves the building to go off to the printer. Disconnected yourself emotionally from the product. Yeah. Hmm. Now, hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean I lose fondness for it. It just means that I, I'm no longer nurturing it like a mother. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's gone off to college. It's gotten a family. Mm -hmm. And it's settled down in a house somewhere. And I don't need to worry about it anymore. Occasionally, yeah. I'll get a Christmas card from it. Yeah. And it'll be like, <laughs> okay, I still love you. Yeah. Bye. I still see myself. <laughs> I still see a little bit of myself in this resemblance. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to confuse that with the fact that I, 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 I don't care about it anymore. Hmm. For instance, one of the, the great joys of being a storyteller, putting something out there is hearing how people react to it. Yeah. And I get a lot of emotional um, happiness hearing how people played through the mm. adventure that I wrote. Mm. Like somebody will say, oh, I just ran Curse of Strahd, which of course I wrote in 2013 or yeah. whatever. Or 2015. Chris Lockie would know. Yes, he would. Uh, and this is how it went. You know, they did this and this and this and this. And I love hearing those crazy stories because they're never the same. Yeah. Everybody's had a completely different experience running the adventure, but they're all absolutely fantastic stories mm. to listen to. Yeah. And that makes that that warms my heart because A, hey, people are actually using this yeah. and getting something out of it. And B, oh, that was kind of a fun adventure yeah. to do. I'm kind of remembering things about it now. Yeah. But then I'll look at it and go, oh, I should have done that differently. Oh, I should have done that differently. Right. But that's just moments of I have nothing better to do. I'm going to flip through an adventure and see, see how, how it could have gone. Yeah. How it could have done something different if I had an extra week or whatever. Do you need a deadline? Are you somebody that needs, yes. I, I need to have that or yes. I'm just going to be, okay. Yes. And if I don't, if the, somebody doesn't give me one, I give myself one mm -hmm. and I hold myself to it. Are you good about that? Yes. 
I'm Absolutely. okay about it. Yes. I'm like, yeah, we could move this a couple of days. Yeah, but yeah, I try yeah. to stay, I try to stay on there yeah. because we I feel like in our nature, we have to have a stopping point set before us by ourselves or somebody else. I agree. And it's I don't think it's healthy to stay plugged into something for too long. Mm-hmm. Um, because then self-doubt creeps in, you start to de- all sorts of weird yeah. emotions get the the more you linger on something, the more pessimistic you're likely to feel about the process. Yeah. But if you let it go, knowing that it's probably not 100% perfect, mm. but it's it's certainly going to do what it's set out to do. Mm. The important thing is I will have learned something from that process. I want to test, I want to use that knowledge on the next thing. Right, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And I don't just have one idea in my head. I have a hundred ideas. I want to get to those other 99 ideas. Mm. I can't do that if I'm still. Yeah, stuck in the past. It goes back to that thing. Where do you think that mentality came from of being, it's so easy for you to let stuff in the past go and to just keep, is it because you work on a deadline based thing and you have to just keep focusing on the next thing? But even what you said about those friends and those things in the past that you don't have any connection to anymore, where do you think that comes from? I think I might be sociopathic. <laughs> I I think I think here I'm gonna so I'm gonna diagnose you. I'm gonna diagnose you with my with my thoughts. I think you have a lot on your plate in present, and I think you know where you want things to be in the future, and you're able to go. I am going to diminish my emotional capacity for this thing that I'm in right now and mental capacity. Yeah. If I, I, I have a very, the reason why I, I prodded you there is because I'm sort of the same way. I have a harder time with people, letting people go mm-hmm. from the past because I have a guilty sort of complex to begin with. And I, 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 I go, oh, but that person meant a lot to me for five years. It's hard for me to go, the, you know, they don't really fit into my life now. Talison is somebody who's very good about calling me out on that and saying like you're you're holding too much weight okay. that you don't need to carry. But I also have that thing where I go I can't have one foot there and one foot in this thing I'm doing and one foot in the future. I have to just choose right. and I feel weight is lifted when I do yeah. that. You feel the same way? I do. Yes. Yeah. I have I have two legs, one's in the present, one's in the future. Hmm. I don't have a third leg for the past. Yeah. Um, and it, it works for me, uh, partly because I become, I do become very immersed in my work and something, this is, this is definitely the way I've always been. Um, this was how I was as a child. Uh, I'm very good working alone. Yeah. Um, my parents used to always say, you know, he would just play by himself for hours and he would just disappear into a room and we don't know what he would do, but he'd just play, basically playing with himself for hours and they never had to worry about, mm. you know, me being bored or destructive. Getting in trouble. Or getting or, into trouble yeah. or anything like that. That It's just always that way. You didn't have idle hands very often. No, mm. no. Mm. And, uh, well, I mean, it's not to say we didn't get into trouble, but I almost blinded myself once. What? How? My friend and I decided it would be a really good idea to douse each other in powdered lime. Wait, but wait. <laughs> the stuff that you use to like yeah. get rid of a body? 
Now I had a cousin who told me that. Yeah, that that's what it's. There for. was uh, he had in his carport. Uh, his dad had put these basically uh, burlap sacks of lime powder. Yeah, just stack them up, and we cut them all open and dust ourselves. <laughs> and then I went home uh-huh. covered in lime powder, which my mother instantly recognized because you can smell it. Yeah, and, you, you can know, smell it. And, wondering why my you know skin is burning mm-hmm. and uh, uh yeah and it was all on my eyelids but not actually in my eye if it had gotten in my eye i'd be blind right now oh my god yeah we were so stupid yeah i i did some really stupid stuff like yeah. that yeah yeah but uh basically i've i've always been able to immerse i get very immersed in writing when i am sitting in front of the computer and i'm in the zone i can stay in that zone forever me too yeah if i if i find the stream i can stay yeah. in there yeah it's only my dog who will come up and go tap 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 time to go time yeah, yeah. time to get away from the screen boy yeah uh, that 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 saves me from getting completely sunk in and mm. i've i've written tremendous amounts over long periods of time nonstop because i'm just there mm. in the present and enjoying it so much is there anything else in your life that touches you the way being in that stream and having that flow where you're not having to force the writing, you know, when you're sitting there, cause there's a difference, right? Yeah. When you go like, I have a deadline, I'm forced to sort of sit down and do this versus when it's sort of just flowing. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, what, what other things in your life give you that same sense of satisfaction, if anything, or is that the only one? Um, it's not the only one. I, I take, I love, um, there's certain collaborative things that I enjoy brainstorming sessions mm. when we haven't cracked the nut of what the story is going to be yet. And it's just wide open Yeah, and we can just sit in a room and just throw crazy ideas out and, and listen them off. That to me is one of the most invigorating yeah. experiences ever. I highly huh. recommend it. And when you can get people in the room who are just as good and powerful a storyteller as you so much, the better I'm thinking, so specifically on Tomb of Annihilation, when we were mm-hmm. breaking that story, we brought in Pendleton Ward, the creator of Adventure Time. Right, yeah. To help us uh, pin everything down, which is extraordinary to be in a room with somebody who, whose mind works the way his does, mm. to be able to bounce ideas off of somebody who doesn't think the way you do, and yet something good can come out of it that you can use. Um, it's extraordinary. When I was working on Curse of Strahd, we brought in Tracy Hickman, who wrote the original Ravenloft adventure. Yeah. Who is a, he, his mind is that of a, an academic, almost mm-hmm. like a professor. Mm-hmm. And we're just a bunch of children sometimes at Wizards by comparison. Yeah. But you bring that kind of person in the room and you start batting around Isaiah, you're going to get something that you never would get mm-hmm. otherwise mm-hmm. because of the, that brain. Yeah. Just being there. I love that. We experience the same thing with artists. When you, when you write an art order for an art description and an artist starts to feed you sketches mm. of it and suddenly what you had in your head is coming alive on the page, that's enormously powerful and addictive and, and beautiful and I love it. The fleshing out of an idea becoming yes. reality. And we see mm. that a lot and the Critical Role guys see that a lot with the, the fan art. Oh, it's a translation of a, you know, <clears throat> something you created in the moment as a group now has landed in the hands of an artist and the artist is taking that moment and presenting it to you, yep. it's, there's nothing like it. And I love the varied interpretation. Yes. Because it's so fluid when it comes out, because it's being made up on the spot and everyone's collaborating, coming up, and then it goes out into the world and you see everyone's different interpretation of it. And yeah, I but love all it. right. 
They're all correct. Yeah. Exactly. Because like they, they got, all got the same info. Yes, they got the same info. They uh-huh. use the same amount of the details are all there, but everything is sculpted a little differently. Yeah. It's it's really quite breathtaking to behold. One of the funnest projects I was sort of observing, I had no involvement is, was one of our art directors sent out a piece of art that had been commissioned to a bunch of other artists and asked mm. them to do their own translation variants of it. Mm. I love stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's a window into somebody else's creative process. Yeah. And I don't presume to say that my creative process will work for anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am infinitely curious about how other people work and how I can work with those people to create something that maybe somebody's never seen before. Wow. Yeah. We talked about diversity in D&D a little bit, but the game itself, right? Yeah. Not just the game, because it's so much bigger than that, but just forget the mechanics. You've been there 20 years. What are the biggest things that have changed in the last 20 years outside of obviously the revisions to the mechanics and adding different stuff like that? Take D&D as a cultural experience and tell me what you think the biggest difference has been in the last, what the biggest changes have been in the last 20 years. So the fundamentals of the game and how it's played haven't changed. People still gather around the table. It's still, you know, friends sharing stories. All that's been the same regardless of the edition. Right. And every edition has encouraged that experience in its own way. The things that have changed is access. Mm-hmm. The game is much more readily available. You can get it in more places. It's because you can watch D&D 24-7 now on streamed shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anybody can learn what it is and how to play it and realize it's not that hard. Um, the way that we have made endeavored to make the books more friendly in terms of how they're written has changed. Right. I don't think we cared a great deal back then. People mm. were just writing to get their ideas out there in a lot of cases, maybe not putting as much thought into who we're we writing for and how the book should be structured. If you look at the first edition DMG, it is like an encyclopedia. <laughs> And there's almost no rhyme or reason to how the information is presented. It's almost like Gary just cracked his skull open, uh-huh. poured, dumped it. dumped it out on the brain, yeah. closed it up, and walked and walked away. And it's all great material. Mm-hmm. But I think it was made for a select wargaming audience who mm. was accustomed to seeing that kind of text before. Mm. Did not make for the best learning experience. And uh, it did not necessarily tell you how the game was supposed to be played. There has been very conscious effort over the course of these past 20 years to make our books more user-friendly, to to understand the power of UI. Mm. And a lot of that comes from the fact that digital games becoming more of a thing, uh, uh, interacting online, user interface wasn't a term we even knew about. Yeah. You know, when I first landed at the company, we right. talked about user interfaces. So no. what the fuck is that? Yeah. Um, now it's a big deal. Everything is about how is the information presented as well as is that information good? And that's that's a very kind of down in the weeds change. Mm. The other thing that has changed is that the people working on D&D are diverse. A lot. A yeah. lot yeah. more diverse. And so embedded in its very DNA is the creativity of a much more diverse group of people. And Mm. so the end product ends up feeling much more accessible and human and relatable to a much larger group of people. Yeah. Another big change for us is look, being responsible as a business to ensure that D and D continues 
And D&D has been fraught with down years as well as enjoyed many, many good years. We have, for instance, significantly reduced the number of products we produce. Mm. And letting them breathe. That's exactly it. Uh, like if Blizzard came out with a new World of Warcraft expansion every month, that would not help the business at all. Right, yeah. Because their development costs would be exceptionally high, high but also the, they wouldn't be able to market half of it. Yeah. Because as soon as one thing comes out, you're already marketing the next three things. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you let things breathe and you let people build up anticipation for something, then they're going to swarm to it yeah. and, and really be drawn to it instead of being fatigued mm -hmm. when they see another title come out. And their, their, their shelves won't be groaning under the weight of yeah. countless books that they've bought and never used, mm. which is another hard lesson yeah. that we've learned is we make more money releasing three books a year than when we release 36 books a year. Mm. And that's, it's, it's all, when, when you see it, it's obvious. And you also need time for feedback to come back about the that, stuff that you did. Exactly. Put out. That, yeah. Yeah. The, this idea that we are not making the game for ourselves, we're making it for the community. Well, that means you have to have a mechanism mm. by which the community can tell you what they think of the game. So, fifth edition had a two year playtesting process, as everybody knows. Yeah. And it had several hundreds of thousands of playtesters involved. That was key. We could not have done fifth edition without that kind of input. And our adventures are playtested, and we, we tap the community with surveys all the time. We put articles up on the web before we release them in our books to see if they test well, uh, before we actually decide to make the game bulkier, mm -hmm. adding more to it. Because every time you add a feat to the game or a spell to the game, that's something else that somebody has to sift through when they're building their characters. Yeah. By the end of fourth It's another edition, choice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think by the end of fourth edition, there were 15,000 feats in the game. That's a tall order for somebody to figure out which feed is right for them. Holy so, shit. Yeah. Lessons. Mm -hmm. Lessons. Paying attention to what the fans are saying. And uh, that's not to say that we necessarily implement every playtest feedback piece that we get. That would be insane. Yeah. Um, we often have to look at the sum total of what people are saying to us and diagnose the problem based on their feelings of discontent or content. You're like, what are the things that are keep popping up. Yeah, What exactly. keeps popping up exactly. in all this feedback. People seem to have friction around this certain yeah. thing. They may not, their solutions to dealing with it may not be what we're interested in, but there's obviously something there and we need to diagnose what the actual problem is and solve it for them as mm. best we can. Mm. Um, these sorts of things, these, these are new behaviors for us. I don't remember doing them back in 2001, yeah. for instance. Yeah. The culture of wizards, a lot of people don't know, has changed dramatically over the years. When I first joined in 1997, Wizards was privately owned, mm -hmm. and it was it was still in this era of magic is the new hotness, mm -hmm. money just flowing like crazy. Then Pokemon comes along, everybody goes insane. Yeah, Hasbro buys the company, and the Wild West culture of Wizards gets tempered mm -hmm. slightly by. I'm not saying Hasbro imposed some sort of draconian overlordship. No, but anytime that happens, right. that's that you, you just we just naturally evolved toward a state of being more um responsible is a fine word, I think. Were you worried when that happened? No. Okay. I don't think so. I don't remember being worried. Hmm. Maybe I was just drunk off the 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 big fat bonus we got from the Pokemon <laughs> yeah. payoff. Yeah. That year my bonus was forty one percent of my salary. Are you serious? Yeah, it was insane. Are you listening, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> it's 
but uh, yeah, it was, wow. it was it was a wacky wacky time. But when Hasbro came in, what'd you spend that money on? Uh, that ooh, awesome, a very good jacket. question. Your Steve Rogers uh, incognito that's outfit. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't remember. That's cool. I think I might have spent it on a car. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I needed one at the time. So we've become um, a much more uh, numbers-driven, data-driven mm-hmm. company, mm-hmm. which I think uh, helps us in a lot of ways. We're also much better at marketing than we used to be. Yeah, yeah. Because we can draw upon Hasbro corporate resources mm-hmm. that just weren't available for us. Do you guys have total creative control ultimately? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it feels that way. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We try to strike up very tight relationships with our business partners. So if, if another company wants to do something D&D related, we try to bring them in as quickly as possible and kind of integrate them with members of the team mm. so that uh, they get instantaneous feedback on all their ideas. And we, we send them like art reference material. One of the burdens, by the way, of being a 45-year-old brand, which has evolved the way D&D has, is we are trying to define an art style and you got 45 years of history and D&D's art style is so radically divergent over the years. That's another big transformation is you look at D&D art, you Google Dungeons and Dragons online. Or the Art and Arcana book you can see. Exactly, exactly. You go through the Art and Arcana book, uh, beautiful book that just came out. Beautiful book. uh, And you see D&D is very elastic when it comes to what it can withstand in terms of its artistic presentation Mm -hmm. and the, the art styles over the years. But sometimes our business partners will say, we want to use this model for this character. And it's like some girl in a chainmail bikini. Right, the like, old. Okay, we, let's yeah. talk about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is an art style that worked, you know, mm-hmm. in, in first edition Dragon Magazine. We can't use that. We're not there here. anymore. We're not there anymore. Um, we've evolved and we want you to as well. Yeah. Uh, so those conversations are funny and fun, but they're serious because... Again, it all ties back to paying attention to what's happening in the world yes. and what our fans expect and want out of this great game mm-hmm. that we're custodians of. And if you're a partner working with us, you are custodians as well by extension. Yeah. And we will we will impose our will mm-hmm. upon you uh, to make sure that everybody who comes to this game feels like they have a place and aren't being turned off by some... Even, even imagery, yeah. yeah. Even even the I love that you guys are protective even of the imagery that's used because times have changed, man. Yeah, they have. For the better. Absolutely. And Absolutely. you don't gain anything by going, yeah, but this is what it's always been and keeping it that way. You know, yeah. you have paying attention to what's going on in the world. Right. Crucial. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a big, I think uh, Wizards has evolved to that state. I'm glad to have been part of the company for so long to see, to just watch it metamorphose over the years and to watch the team change. Our team has gone from being as big as like 50 people, I think at the height of third edition, mm. um, down to where we are now. And that's simply because when you were putting out 36 books a year and you had several active campaign settings, the demands. You needed that. You needed that. Yeah. I love your worldview. I find it fascinating. I follow you on Twitter. I use, I read the blog posts you used to do, and I feel like I have a pretty decent understanding of it. What have been or are the biggest influences on that worldview, or just on you as a person? Oh gosh, I'm asking about Chris Perkins. Yeah, I'm not asking about Wizards of the Coast. I'm asking yeah. about you. Biggest influences on me as a person. 
and the stuff that's influenced your worldview. I know you read a lot, and I know you said that you right. know that that's important. Yes, I I feel like I grew up in an environment that didn't. There was no imposition on me to learn or to explore things. I didn't have people taking ripping D and D books out of my hands mm-hmm. because they thought they were Satanist or right. any, any of that. I had no religion bearing down on me um, or anything. So I always felt like the world was mine to discover mm. and that, um, but I, I have to, I have to just kind of turn to, I guess my teachers for not for letting me be a free thinking person mm. and for, and my editors for teaching me that you can go a lot farther uh, if you're paying attention and adapting and changing. Mm. I, I don't have a, I don't have a, a partner or a wife or uh, a husband or uh, anybody close to me who is a sounding board. So a lot of what I get really just comes from outside stimulus. Um, I'm not a big social media person actually, although I like Twitter. Yeah, it's format more than anything. So yeah, in and out, mm-hmm. little thing, bloop. Yeah, clever little done. Yeah, oh. yeah. Um, influences. Mostly they're people I don't know. They're people I watch. Tell me. Tell me who they are. I'm interested. Okay. I'm interested. Tom Hanks. Yeah. Okay, why? He's sincere. Mm. Everybody seems to want to work with him. Mm-hmm. I have to wonder why. Uh, it can't be because, you know, he's a jerk. He's at the top of his game. Mm. He isn't being a dick, which is kind of nice. Yeah. yeah. It's he's putting hard. good stuff into yeah. the world. You know? Yeah, that's what I feel like. He's put. He's doing good work. Putting good. So you look at his track record. You look at what he's worked on. You can sort of trace. You can see what he puts of himself in his product in his projects. Mm-hmm. You can see that the, you know, people around him when they talk about him have nothing but glowing things to say about him. Yeah, that I can respect. Uh, Jodie Foster. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Is another one here. Here's a woman who has charted her own course. Child actor, mm-hmm. not easy. Mm-mm. Nope, and not taken advantage of, uh, taking risks. Yeah, sometimes falling down, but that doesn't stop her from doing the next thing. Nope, not just writing, directing, directing. Yeah, um, yeah, as well as acting. That's a person who you. Could, I, I just watch their growth, and it just amazes me. I don't know her. I've right. never talked to her. Yeah. I've never done any. You know, but I can watch her and learn from her. Some people outside of acting who inspire me are maybe not idealistic choices, but I've, I, I pick on them for specific things. Hmm. I was always impressed growing up with Margaret Thatcher. Right, yeah. And being Canadian, mm-hmm. we got a lot more news and things about what was happening over in Britain than yeah. we would get here in the States. And, but what I admired about her was her strength and determination and not to be, not to be diverted by nonsense, mm. you know, and mm. I'm very much like that. I dispel, if I get catch a whiff of nonsense happening around me, I'm out of there. Interesting. Um, no time for that shit. No time though. for that shit. Yeah. Uh, we're all too young. We're all too old for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. There's too much going on in the world. Yeah. If somebody's just spouting nonsense, it's like, click, we're done. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. Uh, other, other people who impress me, and this is also going to rub some people the wrong way, is the Queen of England. Interesting. Yeah. Why? I've always loved her. Really? Uh, Do you love the the romanticism of the no, monarchy, or is no. it her specifically? It's her specifically. Okay. And Tell me what it is about her. It is it is this sort of ironclad dedication to duty. On mm. some level, she must realize that she is an antique. 
mm. in this world. I've thought about that, yeah. Um, but she still doesn't. And why? Because that's what is that's what she has to do. Mm. That is, that's the place that she has made. Well, you could, you could say it wasn't made by her. That was made for her. But she owns it. I'm going to ask you a personal question. Yeah. In your description of the queen that you just gave me, is do you feel that way about yourself sometimes? Yeah. yeah. Are you at peace? I'm. I'm at peace with that. Yeah. Totally. Mm. And I. It's. You know. It works for me. Yeah. It does. I. It's an. We're we're painting such an interesting picture here, and I, I love it. I do wonder. You know, we talked about. Oprah. Oprah too. Yeah. yeah Oprah. She made the cover of O Magazine again. I don't know if you noticed, if you've been to a grocery store. Really? That was a long shot. Oprah's a badass. Oprah is somebody... Look where she started. Exactly. Exactly right. And the, you know, I don't know if she's still the richest woman in the world, hopefully. Um, I, do you know who Shonda Rhimes is? Mm-hmm. The TV show yes. uh, showrunner, creator? Yes. She blows me away. And someday, if her shows keep being as successful as they are, could surpass Oprah's wealth. Honestly, she's one of my favorite writers. What she's been able to do in this industry and the place that she's carved out for herself is fucking unprecedented, yeah. in my opinion. Somebody Oprah else is the same way. Somebody else on the writing side that I respect departed now, Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Partly because, and this is something else, this is a conscious thing that I, I learned from him, and that is, if you look at his body of work, it is very, it's varied. Mm. He crosses genres, mm. and he does things that you wouldn't expect him to do. Yeah, um, he even wrote—I believe he wrote like some episodes of The Outer Limits and yeah. like a few stray yeah. odds and ends. But you know, from his you know Fahrenheit and uh, Something Wicked, and you look at his body of work, and he deals with a, a large number of themes across a large number of genres. And I've always wanted to do that in my adventure telling, and I could because I realized D and D is so elastic. Yes, that. D&D isn't just medieval fantasy, Arthurian legend. It's mm-hmm. also gothic horror. There's some sci-fi elements thrown in. There's Lovecraftian yeah. influences. Yeah. I can write adventures for any of those things, still put the D&D logo on it, mm. and spit it out. Mm. And I love being able to do that. Yeah, yeah. Just the adventures I've written in the past five years are, are, were deliberately intended to not be very much alike in terms of their theme or genre. There's like Indiana Jones in the jungle with yeah. Tomb of Annihilation. There's the gothic horror Curse of Strahd and, you know, that kind of thing. And I look at folks like Ray Bradbury as inspiration for that. Like, mm. Yeah, you can get away with that. He yeah. showed me you don't have to be pigeonholed mm. and that you can take your craft and uh, stretch it out into places that people would not expect it to be stretched. Wow. Yeah. At some point. Whenever this ends up being, at some point. I want to ask you a question first. Okay, you asked me a question. So you're stuck on a desert island. Okay. What's the one book you want to have with you? The Road, Cormac McCarthy. Not How to Survive on a Desert Island? Damn, I should have. <laughs> Fuck, Chris. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Not How to Get Off a Desert Island You're Stranded <laughs> Okay, enjoy The Road. That's fine. Yeah. Have you read it? Uh, no. I read it in one day. I had a roommate who read it, walked out of his bedroom, and said, you've got to fucking read this, man. And I I, I sat down and read it, and I, I the, the contrast of 
the beauty in the relationship <clears throat> between them, I'm not giving anything away for people who haven't had a chance to read it yet, but the it won a Pulitzer, the, the, the contrast of, sparring Stephen King's term here, the world moved on, mm-hmm. and we're following a relationship, and it's more than a tale of survival to me, it's a tale of this relationship. And the theme of, regardless of how put together or decimated the world is, this is the meaning of life. This through line of that relationship and of that shared experience is the purpose of life, from my interpretation. And I am someone who needs to be reminded of that constantly. Not constantly, but consistently. I need to be reminded of that. And that's why I would take that with me. Because everything else is stripped away. This is the only thing that really matters. And that's, that's the those are the memories that I cherish and that I take with me. That's, that's what, that's what this thing means to me is, um, this is a lot of people that I want to be living my life with and living and, and going on adventures with and, and And what better crew? I mean, my chosen family. Yeah. 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 You mentioned Stephen King. He was my favorite childhood writer. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. He just had a way of arresting your imagination yes. and holding it in that place. Yeah. You and, know. and he could take mundane things and just mm-hmm. turn them around and freak the hell out of you with them. Pet Cemetery. Oh, I fucking love yes. Pet Cemetery. That's the best. My turn? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Uh, okay. At some point, you are going to die. Retire. <laughs> at some point, you're going to retire. You're going to die too. But you know, at some point, you're. You, I bought you've... my retirement property. <laughs> yeah, you did. I did. It, where is it? Tell me. It's near us. It's huh. uh, it's on the Pacific coast of Washington. Oh wow! Yeah. So yeah, nearish. Nearish to where you're it's, at. It's beautiful. Yeah, I yeah. bet. I have a lot of family up there. I like to go. I like visiting. So you bought that already. So I'm, I'm wondering a couple of things. Yeah. Number one, your contribution to not just the company, but the culture of D&D, uh, what you hope that is once you've walked away from it. And the other question is, then what? You have, you have eaten, slept, breathed, been married to yeah. Dungeons and Dragons. I asked you at the beginning of this conversation, you know, do you have times where you need to get away from it? And you say, I don't want to get away from it. Mm-hmm. What happens when you walk away from D&D as a profession? It's still going to be in your life, obviously. You're still going to want to play. You're still going to want to run games. But number one, what's that legacy? And number two, what do you want? What else do you want to do, man? What else is there for you? So I want my le- my legacy is the work and it's the and it's the knowledge of you know, the adventures and stuff that I've put out there, giving people hours and hours and hours of entertainment mm. and the ability to tell their own stories, to take the material I've taken, adapt it for their own games and make it their own. I'm, I'm so happy with the ability to do that and the stuff that is I'm putting out there mm. for people. That's it. When I walk away, when I retire, um, you probably will never hear from me again. Oh, yeah. I dig that shit, man. I've told my family, I said, one of these days I'm moving to Ireland. I'm going to chop my own firewood. I'm going to fucking live without electricity. No one will ever hear from me. And when I die, 
somebody will go through my belongings and find 30 unpublished D&D thingamabobs mm. that I wrote mm. while I was, you know, on rainy nights uh, listening to the waves yeah. crash against the shore. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they'll do with those what they will. Because I'll probably I'll won't. Sell them. I, I won't stop writing, I, you know. And there are yeah. other things I want to do. Um, I would love to. I'd love to write a book of some kind about my experiences in the industry and mm. working at Wizards. I think you should, man. Um, I would read the fuck out of that. It might be partly fictional. I don't know. Just for the sake of, you know, yeah. it's not the most exciting at all times kind of situation. I understand, yeah. I think it would be fun. Uh, but basically, I want to bury myself up to my eyeballs in uh, some far-flung coastal realm mm. where I can meet strange monsters and uh, just not be... Mm visible that's beautiful i think that's beautiful earlier when you got here we were watching clips from a recent live show we did mm. yeah. do you ever see sam regal rollerblade onto the stage <laughs> in uh in a tight leather outfit and go this is not the dungeons and dragons <laughs> <laughs> this is the death of i this is the death of D &D. The death of D &D. sam regal <laughs> I will never be able to look at this game. Or the same me way. in a '69 sequin jacket, and or you know, I. There's so many different. Uh, yeah. D and D is what you make it. Yeah. And every interpretation is as good as the next. Mm. I. Uh, it warms my heart that people will just throw themselves out there and enjoy themselves so fully in the company of their, you know, mm. their friends and. It is just another expression of humanity. Mm. And we are all beautiful. Yeah. I can't think of a better way to end, man. Thank you. Thank you, sir. This was fucking awesome. And I'm serious about that. Uh, that typewriter? Typewriter. Yeah, okay. I'll figure out where it is first, and then I'll get. To, I'll let you know. Make some I decent will. coin, get myself I'll a new teaching is. outfit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I gotta say, there's a, like a key on the end that's pretty weak when you hit it. It doesn't make much of an impression anymore. It's the key. What 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 key is it? I'm trying to remember. I don't remember. If it's a Z, we're good, yeah. man. Because I don't use those a lot. <laughs> don't use that if it's an F, we're fucked. Because Fuck. I use that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Thank you, dude. This, this was, was a treat. Thank you. Yeah. My thanks to Chris Perkins for joining me, and my thanks to you, as always, for listening. If you want to support our show, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave a rating or a review if you'd like. Until next time, don't forget to love each other.